Good morning, everyone. Uh, the peace of Christ always be with you. Uh, greetings from First Presbyterian Church in Prattville. It is an honor to be uh, invited to come and speak to you all uh, this morning once again. If you could turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We'll look at Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And as you're, as you're turning, let me have this be read in your ears. Compromise. Acceptance. Toleration. These are words that we often hear in our day. We live in an age of so-called tolerance and subjectivity on a multitude of issues, be it from gender to the point of race and sexuality. We even see this language of tolerance and compromise within the church, some of it being good and some of it being not so good. You see, theological differences within the church are okay. You see, we can have disagreements on the millennium, or we can disagree on things like infant baptism, and it wouldn't kick you out of the kingdom. I could disagree with a Baptist upon whether or not we baptize our infants, and they wouldn't be kicked out of the kingdom. That, of course, would be wrong, <laughs> but I wouldn't have to kick them out of the kingdom for it. However, there is a movement that is going on not only online but in the churches today among evangelicals like you and like me that state that you only have to believe that Jesus is Lord in order to be saved. I mean, and that seems to be on pretty good grounds. Paul says in the book of Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that seems to be okay so far. But then when you continue to listen to them, they say, well, you don't have to believe in the Trinity. You don't have to believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven in order to be saved. If you just have to say one thing, then you're a Christian. But is that statement true? Are there no other important doctrines that need to be defended with a Christian's whole heart? I believe that the Bible says that there is. Consider our text today that we're going to be looking at. We come to one of the most contentious passages in Scripture and one of the most contentious letters in Scripture. Paul in the book of Galatians doesn't begin with the general greeting that he does in all of his other letters. In his other letters, he begins with, you know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, greetings unto all of you. But here in Galatians, he says, Paul, an apostle, what are y'all doing? <laughs> so here... What Paul does in this chapter, he calls out another apostle for going out of step with the gospel. So why does he do that? How does he do that? And why is this passage really important for us today? Let's find out as we read God's word in Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, 
if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I torn down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. O oh God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. O oh Lord our God, from whom all good comes, Grant us by the inspiration of your spirit to be, to understand and obey your word so that we might contemplate holy things and be empowered to accomplish them through the might of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, today I beg, do not let your church hear me, but let them hear you. Speak, almighty God, for your church longs to hear you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we look into our text today, I want to point out three things for us to consider. Number one, the opposition to truth. Number two, the correction by the truth. And number three, the beauty of the truth. Let's begin with point one. We see here in this passage that the blessed Apostle Paul is opposing the Apostle Peter in the church of Antioch. Tradition tells us that Antioch was a church that Peter himself founded, and now he's being attacked by another apostle. You see, Paul uses heavy claims against Peter. He says that Peter stood condemned, that he forces the Gentiles to live like Jews, and finally that he is engaging in hypocrisy. My goodness, Paul, what did Peter do to warrant this scathing rebuke? He warrants this because Peter is not walking, as Paul says, in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul records it in verses 12 through 13. Let's look at our text. For before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Really, Paul? Is this truly serious? Just because you separate yourself from a few people means that you're not really walking in step with the gospel? 
I mean, honestly, aren't you being a bit harsh? This doesn't seem that serious. No, he is being serious, and it does mean a lot here. Why? Because Paul is saying that Peter is denying the gospel. Think about what's going on in this point in redemption history. Paul, as he records in chapter 1, went to the apostles themselves to check to see if he was preaching the same gospel as they were. He, he was extended the right hand of fellowship by Peter, James, and John, and the other apostles. And they were checked to make sure that he was preaching the true gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And this gospel, this true gospel, is opposed to the false claim of the people that we call the Judaizers. You see, the Judaizers believe that you not only had to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also had to be circumcised. Basically, you had to become a Jew in order to accept and be accepted by the Messiah of the Jews. This meant that you had to obey all the laws of Moses, including circumcision, in order to be saved. In short, Jesus ain't enough. And when it came to this law of Moses, to eating with other people, you could not eat with people who do not follow the same laws as you do. Do, do we really understand the, the point of what Paul is getting at here with the Judaizers? Do we understand what the Judaizers believe? Awesome, great. So, now, here we have the Apostle Peter, who has confirmed that Paul's gospel is true, and previously has been living like it was true. But when it comes to these men from James coming into Antioch, Peter, for some reason, becomes afraid of them. And out of that fear, he begins to act like a high school cheerleader towards the Gentiles. You see, he basically says to the Gentiles, you know, these, these cool guys are coming. You can't sit with us. And that behavior is a massive slap in the face to everything that Peter has said and done so far in his ministry as an apostle. What has he done? Let's recap a little bit. Peter was the one who was told specifically by God to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel to them. He was told specifically that the Gentiles are clean and a part of God's church. You remember the situation with Peter and God in Acts chapter 10, where a literal sheet full of wild animals comes down to Peter. Let's look at what Peter says to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, in light of this vision that he had. In Acts chapter 10, verse 28, Peter tells Cornelius the centurion, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any common person unclean. So just as the animals were said by God, do not call common what I have made clean, in the exact same way, he has made us Gentiles, not common, but clean. We're part of God's church. And yet now, the first apostle to baptize a Gentile and accept them into the church is now avoiding them like the plague. Brothers and sisters, do you not see now how serious this is. Do you not see how, ex how an excellent servant of God 
Peter, the first one who preaches at Pentecost, if you guys remember the last time I was here, I preached Peter's sermons on Pentecost. The first one who preached at Pentecost is now slipping up and falling into great sin. Do you not see how fear can sometimes make us soften and even deny the gospel? You see, this is a constant temptation in the Christian life. I ask you, beloved, have you ever lapsed into legalism? Or have you been tempted to betray the gospel out of fear? I know I have. You see, in this day and age, I call myself a recovering people pleaser. (laughs) And you know why? I, I like to see people happy. I really do. And I absolutely hate it when people are upset with me. Or even if I think that someone is upset with me. This comes up with my forms of anxiety. It, it sucks and I hate it. <laughs> but it, because of that, I do my best to make sure that everyone's happy with me. I make sure that everyone's comfortable. I make sure that everyone's okay with me. And sometimes I bend myself over backwards to make sure that I don't step on any toes. And in the end, that comes up with people missing out on the true blessings that they have, and it ends up hurting me and them at the exact same time. You see, this behavior is even more dangerous when it comes to defending or proclaiming the Christian faith. You see, there's always the temptation to soften the gospel in order to not offend anyone. We live in an age where people are always walking on glass to make sure that you don't offend anyone. Everyone is always so triggered that you don't, so, so in order to make sure that they're not triggered, you make sure to not offend them in any way, shape, or form. But that's not going to work in the Christian faith. You see, there's always the temptation to not be the Jesus freak or the Bible guy or the Bible thumper among our friends. It doesn't make us popular at parties. I I can tell you that from experience, but if we do that, if we soften the gospel, we're actually leaving our brothers and sisters, our future brothers and sisters, if God so wills, in a worse state than they began. If we soften the gospel, or if we fail to walk in step with the gospel, something needs to happen. Something needs to be done to us and for us. But what is That's something. What must we do? That leads us to our second point, correction by the truth. Let's look at what Paul does in verse 11 of our text. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now also scroll down to verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, here Paul goes up to Peter in the presence of the entire church of Antioch and says to Peter's face, you, sir, are wrong. Paul doesn't let things stay the way that they are. He openly rebukes Peter and corrects him and reminds him of the true gospel. He corrects him through the truth of the gospel. You see, my friends, in time of gospel compromise, there must also be a time of gospel 
correction. Let me repeat that for you. In a time of gospel compromise, especially a day like today, there must also be a time of gospel correction. Now, am I saying that every single time we come across a point or someone that we disagree with, we need to get up in their faces and scream at them until they repent? God forbid, no. <laughs> but every, every religious disagreement doesn't require us to do what Paul did. But what I am saying is that when it comes to crucial things that go to the heart of the gospel, things like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, Christ's substitutionary atonement, the reality of hell, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, what we just confess in the Apostles' Creed. Those things need to be defended with confidence. We need to be willing to correct and critique a brother. And believers, you must be ready to be willing to be corrected by a brother. You see, it's, not, it's easy for us to really go up to someone and correct others. But it's not easy for us to be corrected by our brothers. I want to remind you that you have a responsibility to myself, to Parker, and to the rest of the teaching elders and ruling elders here in this church that you need to correct us when we're wrong. You have that responsibility as a person who made oaths to this church. But you also, as someone who has made oaths to this church, be willing to be corrected by myself, by Parker, by the teaching and ruling elders of this church. I had to experience that as well. In one of my most recent lessons I taught at First Prez on Islam, I was a bit flippant with my words. I described an individual as a former Christian who stopped being a Christian and then came back into being one. And at the end of the lesson, I was lovingly corrected by one of my beloved brothers, one of our ruling elders. He noted that if a person was truly a Christian, he could never stop being one. Yes, a person can fall into deep sin. A person can truly be excommunicated by the church under church discipline. But if the seed of God is truly in them, then eventually they will repent and join back into the fold of the church. That's what the Bible says. First John says that if a person does sin, then they have the ability to come back home because the seed of God abides in them. I was honored to be corrected by that brother in Christ because he's exactly right. The way that we say things and the way that we do things reveal our hearts. So it is important for us to be careful about how we speak and what we do. And this is not just important in our personal lives, but it happened in history. Just a few weeks ago was October 31st, the celebration of the Protestant Reformation. So I want, us to I want to remind us of the historical situation that caused the Protestant Reformation. You see, while Martin Luther was ministering in Germany, he heard about a man who was going around town asking for money to build a massive church in Rome. That church was St. Peter's Basilica. This man was a man named Johann Tetzel. Now, Tetzel would set up displays for people showing their loved ones who died and are now, according to him, suffering in purgatory. Now, the sufferings of purgatory were pretty much the same flames that you would endure in hell, but you're enduring them as a Christian and not as an unbeliever. 
And so he would pull on their heartstrings, just like a, 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 an artist would play on a harp's heartstrings, saying that there was a way that you could save yourself or your loved ones from punishment after death. One could simply buy what is called an indulgence. An indulgence is basically grace given from God, given out by the will of the Pope, and you can use it for yourself or for someone else. Tetzel used to say something like this when he preached. This is what he said, quote, For a soul to fly out of purgatory, it is for it to obtain the vision of God, which can be hindered by no interruption. Therefore, he errs or he sins who says that the soul cannot fly out before the coin can jingle in the bottom of the chest, end quote. So in other words, just as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So for the Roman church, salvation and repentance was reduced to how much money you had. People spent all that they had so that they could help the dead, even though they had absolutely no idea what was really happening to them. Luther, a good pastor, could not sit still as the grace of God was cheapened how salvation and forgiveness was basically the equivalent to chump change. And what Luther did when he nailed his 95 debate topics to the church door at Wittenberg set in motion the greatest theological revolution in history. And it was because he, as a good pastor, could not stand that false teaching was in his church. He was willing and ready to correct it. Luther, like Paul, did not sit still in the face of error, but worked to call out heresy and protect the gospel. Thanks be to God for Martin Luther, and thanks be to God for people like him. So I ask you, beloved, do you see things in your life that are out of step with the gospel? Do you see sin in your life that is out of step with what God calls you to be? Do you see brothers and sisters among you who are openly living in sin? You see, as Paul recognized, we likewise have an obligation to go to our brothers and sisters when they stumble and fall and lovingly, and if needs be, openly correct them. But then that begs the question, why must we correct them? Why is the gospel so important to Paul and also to us? that it warrants such an uncomfortable rebuke. You see, that leads us to our final point, the beauty of the truth. You see here, Paul lays out the motivation for why he does what he does, why the gospel is so important to him. Look at verse 15. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were be, were be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I torn down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I die to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of justification must be protected. Why? Because it's beautiful to us, and it's the only way by which we must be saved. Paul, like a record player, like a clanging cymbal, states the case three times in the same sentence. We are justified by faith, not by works. Number one, we believe in Christ in order to be justified by faith. Number two, no one is justified by works and therefore faith is the only way to be justified. Number three, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. This is the core of our doctrine. Paul can't say it enough. This is the only way for anyone to be able to stand before God. What Paul is saying is that if we don't get this, the Christian life means nothing. It's worthless. Anything else without this is a prideful grasping at straws, arrogantly thinking that your own dirty deeds will make God love you and make God approve of you. How How selfish is that? Oh, yeah, sure, me and my filthy deeds can justify myself before an almighty, righteous, and holy God. No, in fact, the contrary is true. Your works will only condemn you because they are tainted with sin, and they instead will heap up coals upon you on the day of judgment. You're stirring up more and more wrath against you instead of accumulating the love of God. But instead of giving us a gospel of works, Paul lays before us the gospel of justification through faith alone in Christ's substitutionary atonement. He brings us some of the most beautiful words in scripture related to union with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. Christ did not die needlessly. He died with a purpose. When he died, he died seeking to save men like you and men like me. When he breathed his last breath, he said, it is finished. What is finished? Everything that I needed in order to stand before a righteous and holy God. My justification, my right standing is finished. My justification, my holiness is finished. My glorification is finished. My resurrection is finished. My uniting with Christ is finished. Everything that I need is found within Christ and in him alone. And the only thing I need to do is trust him with a true and lively faith. I can say, as Augustus' top lady in his beautiful hymn once said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. He says that the life that he now lives, one of, yes, true holiness and good works, is not to gain a standing before God, but because that life springs naturally out of a true and lively faith, just as good fruit springs from a good tree. His good works come out of gratitude for God for what he's done. He lives. Christ lives. 
And because Christ lives, we live. Not because we've kept the law, but because God has kept the law on our behalf and has transformed us so that we might live in his image. Brothers and sisters, my dearly beloved Christians, this is the gospel that Paul preached This is the gospel that the church has preached for over 2,000 years. This is the gospel that Luther, Calvin, John Knox, and Thomas Cranmer preached. Now, brothers, let me ask you, is this the gospel that you preach? Is this the gospel that you see as beautiful? Is this the gospel that gets you to wake up in the morning and know for certain that God loves me? Does this gospel motivate you to cling to the one who saved you? Does this gospel make you long for the promises found in his holy word, proclaimed through the preaching of the gospel and then the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper? Oh, beloved, does this cause you to go out to your brothers and sisters who do not know God and tell them that there is someone who loves them and who gave themselves for them if they truly believe? Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that this gospel will be on our lips daily. I pray that this gospel will be on my lips daily. I pray that our lives, every single step until eternity, will be one living declaration that we have been justified through faith, that we are crucified with Christ, and the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us with an everlasting love, and gave himself for us. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the one who loved us with an everlasting love and gave himself for us when we were wretched sinners, poor and needy. You were the one who found us. So Father, we ask that you fill us once again with your Holy Spirit so that we might be vessels of your gospel. May we not diminish it by our fears, but give us boldness to proclaim that you love us and you are the only way of salvation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.